Hey, I'm Pastor Danielle. I am the lead pastor here at Spark Church. I'm really excited to see you all um, gathering together as we continue our study in the book of Romans. And let's just take a few moments and quiet ourselves from all of our cool dance moves and feel our heart rate kind of come back to resting. And we'll move our hearts towards worship through the study of the text. Let's take a deep breath. Jesus, we ask that you would tune our attention to you. We become more aware of your presence here in this church and this community amongst our friends and family and neighbors and in this place. And we ask, Jesus, that our time together would glorify you, that you would open up our hearts and our minds and our understanding and our awareness, that you would soften our hearts to your truth and the beauty of all that you are for us and can be for us, Jesus. And we just ask that this time would glorify you and would build more of your kingdom here on earth as it is in heaven. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit, amen. All right, we are in the book of Romans. And I'm just recapping because as I've mentioned to you several times, it seems impossible to not just sit and read the whole letter every week together in order to talk about one aspect because it's all very, very connected and you can't just pull one thread. But we'll try to do a little bit of that today. So we started with not ashamed of the gospel and tried to give us all like sort of a bit of an overview of where we think Paul is going to be arguing and what, what we suspect and suggest is the very beautiful gospel he's not ashamed of. And then Kevin took us all the way to the end of Romans, of in conclusion with Romans 15 and 16. And then last week, we kind of poured through the tough work of Romans 1, 2, and now we're going to be pushing on and continuing it a little bit in Romans 3, some of those challenging passages that have been used to harm people, to say who's in and who's out, or to sort of order a priority of sin or something in somebody's lives. And so we talked about how what Paul is arguing is that both Jews and Greeks are under the power of sin, that all have sinned and fallen short, that nobody is excused. Because this Roman community is full of both Jewish followers of Jesus and Gentile followers of Jesus, Paul needed to start by just saying, all y'all are a mess. And that's kind of how it starts right at the very beginning. And then proceeds that way, continue. His argument's going to continue here into Romans 3. Then what advantage has the Jew? So if, like, he's just sorted out that, you know, Jews are just as guilty as Gentiles. Well, what, what advantage? What value is the circumcision? Much in every way. For in the first place, the Jews were entrusted with the very words of God. Now, your text here might use the word oracles. It's just logia in the Greek. But it really has to do with, like, God gave this people the whole of the Hebrew Bible, and they've been entrusted with that. Now, maybe the framing oracle could have additional resonance or power for people who are Greeks in the audience. Go, well, I had to go all the way to Delphi and pay a lot of money to get an oracle from God. So Delphi is a place where there was an oracle, okay, in, uh, in Greece and in Turkey, and all, there was like these different places all around where you'd have to go. Sometimes you have to get in some sort of altered state of consciousness. Sometimes you'd have to sacrifice an animal and have them read the liver for you in order to get an oracle from the gods. Um, you'd sometimes have to pay a lot of money. A lot of it was very involved. And here, God gave God's very words to God's people. And so he's saying, hey, first of all, they have the Torah, right? They have these beautiful words. But what if some were unfaithful? Where their faithfulness nullified the faithfulness of 
faithfulness of God? By no means. Although every human is a liar, by the way, all y'all in the room, every human is a liar, let God be proved true as it is written so that you may be justified in your words and you will prevail when you go to trial. Psalm 51. But if our injustice serves to confirm the justice of God, what should we say? That God is unjust to inflict wrath on us? I speak in a human way. I hope so, Paul. You are human. And by no means, for then how could God judge the world? But if through my falsehood, God's truthfulness abounds to his glory, why am I still being judged as a sinner? And why not say, as some people slander us by saying that we say, let us do evil so that good may come. Their judgment is deserved. What then? Are we any better off? No, not at all. For we have already charged that all both Jews and Greeks are under the power of sin as it is written there is no one who is righteous not even one there is no one who has understanding there is no one who seeks God all have turned aside together they have become worthless there is no one who shows kindness there is not even one their throats are open graves they use their tongues to deceive the venom of vipers is under their lips their mouths are full of cursing and bitterness their feet are swift to shed blood ruin and misery are in their paths and the way of peace they have not known there is no fear of God before their eyes now we know that whatever the law says it speaks to those who are under the law so that every Every mouth may be silenced, and the whole world may be held accountable to God. For no human will be justified before him by deeds prescribed by the law, for through the law comes the knowledge of sin. But now, apart from the law, the righteousness of God has been disclosed and is attested by the law and the prophets. The righteousness of God through the faithfulness of Jesus Christ for all who believe. Does anyone feel like you're sort of stuck right now in the middle of like a Shakespearean soliloquy? And you're just like, okay, I'm trying to hang tight here. I'm waiting for a thee or thou. I'm not really sure what's... There's been a lot of repetitive words, and I think he's angry. So all of those things are happening. Let's continue. It's going to be okay. For there is no distinction. Since all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God, they are now justified by his grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God put forward as a sacrifice of atonement by his blood, effective through faith. He did this to demonstrate his righteousness because in his divine forbearance he had passed over the sins previously committed. It was to demonstrate at the present time his own righteousness so that he is righteous and he justifies the one who has the faith of Jesus. Then what becomes of boasting? It is excluded. Through what kind of law? That of works? No, rather through the law of faith. For we hold that a person is justified by faith apart from works prescribed by the law. Or... Is God the God of the Jews only? Is he not the God of Gentiles also? Yes, of Gentiles also, since God is one. Hear, O Israel, the Lord is our God, the Lord is one. That's what he's talking about there. And he will justify the circumcised on the ground of faith and the uncircumcised through that same faith. Do we then overthrow the law through this faith? By no means. On the contrary, we uphold the law. We've jammed right in. I hope you know how ridiculous it is now to grab one verse and take it out and suggest Paul means one thing by all of that, okay? It's a big, huge, long argument. We're right in the middle of it. One, two, three, and he's going to continue it on four, which we'll continue on next week. And this is why you should all just stay till midnight. We'll just keep going, right? No, we're going to stop. But in the fullness of what is happening in Romans 1 through 3, here's what Paul is saying, okay? The problem is not the failure of Israel or of the Torah or the behavior of the Jews. The problem is not the behavior of Gentiles. The problem is the universality of human sin and wickedness. It's all of us. And no one is righteous and none may boast. And the wrath of God is directed against every human being alike. That's Paul's argument for one, two, and three. All y'all have a problem. All y'all sin. We're all guilty. All of us. 
together, Jew and Greek alike. But here's the good news of chapter 3. God has a plan. Phew, because I was getting really exhausted by the long list, Paul. One of the first things I want to show you is that what Paul is doing throughout actually a whole bunch of his letter, and not just only in this one passage, is that Paul, like the good rabbi that he is, he sat at the feet of Rabbi Gamliel, his name Shaul, asked for, and now he has a Roman name too, Paulus. He is doing this thing that all the rabbis do, including Jesus, all the time. Paul's quoting text all the time. He's referencing back to the Hebrew Bible constantly, to what is called the law and the prophets. The law, the writings, and the prophets. The Torah, the Tanakh. Torah, Nevi'im for prophets. Na'k for Ketuvim writings. Tanakh. That's how they would refer to it. That's how Jesus refers to it. He says, from the law and the prophets, from the time of Moses. People, that's how you refer to the whole of the Hebrew scriptures. And Paul is going to be quoting those texts all the time. And he assumes at least that the Jewish hearers of the letter know what he's doing and know what he's referencing throughout. And so as you went through and you started to feel like, oh my goodness, what is he talking about? Because it's just sort of like these non sequiturs jammed in one after another. He's quoting text. He's quoting phrase after phrase after phrase. And he wants ringing in the heads of everybody who can know the whole context of that action. Here's some of the things he's quoting. 1 Kings 8.46, there's no one who does not sin. Uh, Ecclesiastes 7.20, there is not a righteous person on the earth for who does good and does not sin. Paul's not making that stuff up just for the Romans. He's quoting Ecclesiastes. Uh, Psalm 51, against you, you alone, have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight. Uh, Isaiah 59, 1 through 2, behold, Adonai's hand is not shortened so it cannot save, nor is his ear heavy, it cannot hear. Rather, your iniquities have made a separation between you and God, and you and your God, and your sins have hidden his face from you from hearing. Isaiah 64, 5 or 6, depending upon whether you're reading Septuagint or not, we are all like one who is unclean and all our righteousnesses are like filthy rags. Paul is quoting text all the time, jamming it in and out. Um, Actually, Jesus does this a lot too, people. I had an Old Testament prophet seminary that said Jesus never said anything original. And he's joking, of course, but what he means is that Jesus is quoting Torah all the time. He's quoting text. And Paul is doing the same fear. All these verses are epitomizing the bad news for all of humankind that is listed in 1.18 through 3.20, right? He's just going, oh, are you unconvinced? Do you think you're separate? If you're a Jewish believer and you think you're separate somehow and, and righteous before God, let me remind you what our own prophets say. They've all said we're a mess. And look, the Gentiles have a law written onto their hearts. They can tell these Gentile followers of Jesus what's right and wrong, but they're a mess too, and we can just list all the things they've been up to, right? So he just goes through and he's saying, hey, it's bad news. You're like, when do we get to the good news? Paul, I thought you said this was the gospel. Well, he gives some hints here, even in the quoting of text. For example, in Psalm 51, against you, you alone, I've sinned and done what is evil in your sight. He's, Paul's grabbing hold of Psalm 51, but do you know what continues in Psalm 51? Create in me a clean heart, O God. Restore to me the joy of your salvation. I will teach transgressors your ways. Sinners will return to you. O Lord, open my lips and my heart will declare your praise. O God, you will not despise a broken and contrite heart. He's quoting David. And the, why is he doing that? And, and you're like, but, but listen, Danielle, I just listened very carefully and I have my Bible open to all of the things Paul said. And he never says that. But in rabbinic interpretation and practice for the hearers too, he doesn't have to. 
He just has to hint at it, and we're supposed to know the rest of the verses to follow. That's the context. It's not just you and I stink and everything's bad and we have no hope. It's that, and I'm hinting, of course, there's always been a way to come back and draw closer to God. But here we're finding out that we have a very forever problem. We're really stuck. But the good news Paul is going to suggest is that God offers a forever solution to the problem through Jesus the Messiah, Yeshua HaMashiach. And he's going to try to argue this. The things have changed. In Christ, things are different than they've been before, and here's how and why. So he's going to try to illustrate it through some very beautiful pictures, some illustrations that would also, like those texts, be ringing bells in the hearers. But you've, let's say you, you skipped Torah school, and you didn't get all of those verses memorized. I know that's just maybe one or two of you here, but maybe you didn't know all of those verses that Paul is grabbing and putting into context, but maybe you know a couple things. So let's just grab hold. He says in 3.23 and on, all have sinned, all fall short of the glory of God. They are now justified by his grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God put forward as a sacrifice of atonement by his blood, effective through faith. And he did this to demonstrate his righteousness because in his divine forbearance, he had passed over the sins previously committed. It was to demonstrate at the present time his own righteousness so that he is righteous and he justifies the one who has the faith of Jesus. Well, what pictures is Paul grabbing hold of? The first one that I hear is redemption. And that had a real meaning in Paul's world. It had a real meaning for every Israelite, every Judean that would be sitting and listening. They know they've been held captive in slavery, in Egypt, in Babylon, by the Assyrians, by the ancient Greeks, by the Romans too. And they know that they need to be set free. Also, many of them have probably actually been slaves, been enslaved into some sort of system here in Rome. And Rome knew, had tons of systems with slavery, and people had to be bought out with a price. The redemption was accomplished by the payment of a price or a ransom. And so Paul is arguing here, grabbing this huge picture of redemption, that with his redemptive act in Christ, God has acted to free us from the penalty of sin. So he's convinced us all that we're guilty, and now he's saying, but here's the good news, you have a redeemer. You have someone that will come and pay the price, has paid the price to set you free, to set all of us free. There is a plan and there is some good news. So that picture would have resonated for every Israelite listening, but it would have also resonated for every Gentile listening too. Very familiar with these systems of enslavement and the need for redemption. When we say redemption, if you go up to your friend and your office mate tomorrow at work, like you do, and you say, Jesus redeemed me, this goes over well, HR gets a call, it's all great. So when you say that, does anybody know what redeem mean? Other than maybe you take your recycling cans to it, right? I'm going to redeem my cans for five cents. But in this context, it had a significant, huge meaning. And Paul's like, that's what Jesus has done for you. But wait, I don't think that explains it enough. Let's talk about it again. He says, in Christ, God has passed over us. Well, that's just like a clue right there. The moment you hear pass over, you'd be like, put those two words together. And immediately, what image and what picture is coming to mind? Egypt, right? 
were the faithful Israelites listening to God's command, took a lamb, slaughtered that lamb, put the blood of the lamb on the doorposts of their home, and then God sent out the angel of death amongst the Egyptians, but it passed over the houses of all of faithful Israel. So finally, Pharaoh relents and lets the people go, and they get to flee out of Egypt. That God, this framing, Passover, it's actually... A beautiful thing, God passes over. The blood of the lamb causes God to pass over the penalty of death and of sin. So that means something. And we go, oh yeah, but, but what else could it have meant? I mean, that was a long time ago. Egypt was a long time ago for these beautiful Jewish followers of Jesus. No, because they rehearsed it every year. Every year at Passover, they rehearse it again and again and again. So it's not something that's long ago. It's something that's going to come up again. Oh, yep, this April, every year. Every year. It's told again and again and again how God has set us free, how we have a God of rescue, how we have a God that knows how to pass over the penalty of sin and death over his people and instead set us free. Now, this framing, this language, this comes right into our Gospels, right? Remember that Jesus is referred to as our Passover lamb. Paul refers to him as the Passover lamb at the beginning of the Gospel of John as Jesus is walking by like, hey, look, there's the lamb of God, which by the way is like, that guy's gonna die. So all of that, because the lamb of God is a sacrifice, right? That God's going to offer up. That's what happens every Passover is you pick out your lamb and then it lives with you and your family for a few days so your kids can name it and feel super attached and then you go and you make a sacrifice at the temple. According to Josephus in 66 CE, about 256,000 lambs were sacrificed to accommodate more than 2.7 million people at the Passover. Now, let's say Josephus exaggerates because he does, Um, but still, that's a lot of lambs, right? So this is an ongoing practice. It's not just something like, oh, a long time ago, God set us free from Egypt. It's that every year we're going to retell this story over and over and over again. We're going to make sure this story is told about how God sets us free. And by the way, right now, Rome is holding us captive. We aren't free. Let's see if God will do it again. No wonder they get so mad when Jesus and his disciples come right on into town on what we call Palm Sunday and it's Lamb Selection Day for Passover and on this freedom festival, right? So when Paul says freedom, when Paul says that God passes over, all of these pictures and images are coming through into the brain of all the hearers. Now there's another image that Paul grabs a hold of. He's gonna say mercy seat, or atonement. In Hebrew, it's kapara. In Greek, it's ilasterion. And it's referring to the lid on the top of that ark. And specifically, it's referring to the day of atonement. So kapara can mean atonement. It can mean mercy seat, specifically as it translated. And when you hear atonement, then the first thing you're thinking is what? The Day of Atonement, that happens every year too. Every fall, Yom Kippur, Day of Atonement, Kippur, Kapara, this happens. All of faithful Israel will come together and they will all confess their communal sins. By the way, this is a beautiful practice. You imagine what would happen if every year the corporate church came together and said, hey, world, we just want to let you know we are well aware that we have messed up and we're gonna start to ask for forgiveness. And we're gonna go to one another, and we're also gonna ask for forgiveness as a people. That's an amazing practice. So every year, 
They're doing this. They're required, by the way, to be in Jerusalem for this event. You are required. Now, according to Leviticus 16, and I'm going to summarize quickly because I know we've had a lot of text already, but Aaron, the high priest, is going to take two goats and he's going to set them before the Lord. And one goat will be the sacrificial goat and one goat will be the scapegoat. Yes, this is where we get that term. And this scapegoat, the Azazel, will be taken out with the sins of the people and the other one will be made as a sacrificial offering and its blood put on the atonement cover of the ark. Now this happens only one day a year. Aaron can't go in and party in the Holy of Holies all the time. One day a year he's allowed to go in, Aaron and Aaron's descendants, and they're allowed to go, okay? Now, nobody wanted to touch the goat that had all the sins of all of Israel placed upon it. Either the one that was going to die, okay, we can sacrifice that one, we can see the atonement made for our sins, but the one that was going to be cast out. Can you imagine all of the sins of all of the people placed on that goat and then asking a really good faithful Jew, hey, well, you want to touch this goat and take it on out? Nobody was signing up for that. So it was often done by a Gentile. So this goat would be taken out and wandered away. Now, there's a lot of really interesting conversation in the Talmud about this practice and about this red cord that would be placed upon the head, the scapegoat, and set upon the scapegoat's head as a symbol of all of our sins. And this might be where Isaiah gets phrasings like, our sins were red as scarlet, but now they're white as snow. Because the rabbi said that what would happen is they would take that, that red thread that sort of crown of red, take it off and nail it to the front of the temple door. And then over time then, you would see, all the people would see that the crimson would start to go away. It would start to fade and it, the crimson would turn to white. And it would be a symbol that God has heard our prayers. God has heard our faithful prayers to ask to be atoned for every fall. And nobody is sinning a whole bunch in order to get ready for the day of atonement, Right? We all know that's we already, it's just that people know that there's a time and a place where we can really come together and truly grieve how we have sinned and come and say, I'd like to try again. Now, Paul's going to start to argue in a little bit like, oh, because of this beautiful gift that we have in Jesus Christ, should we sin all the more? Of course not. And we'll talk about that in a little bit. But did you know that people have still levied even today? accusations against faithful Israelites, Judeans, Jews, to say, oh, they just sin all the time so, because they know they're going to get forgiven in the fall. No, it's not how it works, is it? Is that what you do as a Christian? You're like, I know Jesus has covered me, and so therefore I'm going to sin all the time. No, of course not. This is a beautiful gift of God. And so Paul takes this language this language of the scapegoat going out and casting all of our sins away, this language of the sacrificial for our sins and the blood, the sacrificial goat being put there and I don't like talking about it, sacrificed and then the blood drained out and dripped all around. You can read all about it. By the way, if you ever read a dramatic version, if you're listening to the dramatic version of the Bible, just skip Leviticus entirely because there's like a lot of splattering. It's very upsetting. The Azazel though is cast out and we have some pictures in our gospels that suggest that people understood Jesus to be this too. Both the sacrificial lamb that goat that was slain on the Passover, even though it's not Day of Atonement, they understood this picture as well as the one cast out. You remember that all of the crowd, the crowd that was there, they say, what should I do? Pilate says, what should I do with this guy? And they say, take him away, take him away. 
The same thing you would count Azazel, Azazel, cast that guy out. And it's Simon of Cyrene, a Gentile, that goes and helps Jesus with his cross to go outside. Paul knows these stories, so he grabs this imagery. He's like, the lid of the ark is called the caporet. This is the kapara. It's a mercy seat. It's called ilasterion. This is what we're talking about, that Jesus is our atonement. Now, we like to sit and talk about all these big fancy words, but here's what it simply means. It appears, this word appears twice in the New Testament. It appears here in Romans 3 and in Hebrews 9, 5, which is very literally translated there, the mercy seat. It forms the cover of the Ark of the Covenant, the Holy Holies, the temple, where the high priest entered once a year on Yom Kippur to offer sacrifice for the sins of the people. In Romans, when you get here, some different translations will say propitiation, expiation, atonement. That's, those are big words that don't mean a lot to me. But when I hear kapar, kapara, it has a sense of either to cover or to wipe clean. And the two root meanings both express that what God does when he accepts the expatiation of our sin, he covers the sin from his sight and wipes it and washes away. And that this is what has happened for those of us who have placed our faith in Jesus. The atonement cover. It, another word that is used for the for kapar, kapara, this root, pitch, asphalt, to smear. That is this word. It has a real physical meaning. And people would have in their mind, oh, that's what he's talking about. He's talking about atonement. But not in the way that we now have to go get a big dictionary or have 22 theologians say, well, what type of atonement could it be? And what do we mean by that? And how did the price actually get paid? And let's just figure out the equation of it. Have you guys ever been and tried to sort all of that out? It's always left me empty. But when I can see a picture of it, oh, Passover, got it redeemed, I see. I've been bought, and I've been set free. God has protected me. Oh, and just like on the Day of Atonement, where all of my sins have been wiped out, covered over, that's what Jesus has done for me. One of the more interesting uses of copper on Semitic languages is the use of the verb in Akkadian, also an ancient Near Eastern language, and it has the sense of placing or pouring asphalt which relates to the idea of placing something over something else. It not only relates to the covering of the sin, but also placing the blood on the lid of the ark. So when you hear atonement, you can think this. Jesus is our kapara. That's what you've always been taught, right? Jesus is my asphalt. Yeah? But that's kind of the picture. That where there's been brokenness, and potholes, sinkholes even, where the road has been so destroyed that nobody can walk on it anymore because we have all fallen short because the sin is so great, because, because we have lied and trust has been broken or we've cheated or we've harmed or we've, or we've withheld truth and goodness and something's broken between us and another, between us and God. Jesus comes, and when we put our trust in him, it's Jesus' faithfulness that covers over and makes it like new. We can try again. Paul is saying that in Christ, a new righteousness has appeared in the history of redemption to deal with the sin of the world. And the source of this righteousness, this behavior, this, this righteousness in Christ is from God. And it is nothing other than the gracious, gracious provision of Jesus Christ as the atonement sacrifice for our sin. 
It's such good news. Because what Paul has convinced us all from Romans 1 and 2 and into 3 is that we all stink. And here he's saying, and Jesus has redeemed. God in Christ has redeemed you. Just like he did long ago, that story's still happening. God in Christ has set you free. God in Christ has covered over. God in Christ has atoned for us. God in Christ, because of God's love and righteousness, because of Christ's righteousness, this is possible. So Paul is presenting Jesus as the ultimate mercy seat, the ultimate place of atonement, and the ultimate sacrifice. And he grabs hold of all of these pictures and images and quotes that people would have been familiar with that are bound in the culture of his day. He says, it's kind of like this, and it's also like this, and it's also like this. But we all need Jesus. You know, one of the things that struggles with me so much when we start talking about sin is that immediately, as you know, if you've been around Spark for any long time, is that I like to talk about how much God loves us, and I really don't like to talk about how we all mess up all the time, although I'm very aware of my own mess-ups constantly, right? And we try to split those things apart. Have you ever heard people say things like, well, the God, I believe in a God of love, and you can believe in a God of wrath, or I believe in a God of mercy, um, but you believe in a God of holiness. And I just want to suggest here that Paul isn't actually splitting any of this apart, and he's holding it all together for us. That the Bible can speak of the love of God in diverse ways, and if love is understood in an abstract and fairly impersonal way, then it becomes difficult to see how in the same God such love can exist with wrath. Anybody else have a problem? Right? If I want to say, you don't have a bumper sticker right? it says God is wrath. You might have one that says God is love, but you're not walking around with God is wrath. Anybody? No? That's the tattoo right here? But the scriptures do treat God's love in more dynamic ways, in diverse ways that reflect the varieties of relationships into which God enters. And thus the Bible can speak of God's providential love and his yearning and his inviting love and his sovereign and elective love and his love conditioned by covenant stipulations and more. Moreover, the same scriptures that teach us that God is love insist no less strongly that God is holy. And in scripture, God's wrath is nothing other than his holiness when it confronts the rebellion of his creation. I'm actually really glad for that. Because I don't think it's a very loving parent that sits on the sidelines and watches their kids get harmed at a playground and doesn't jump on in and require some justice for the harm that's been done. I think a God of justice, dare I even say a God of wrath, that righteous anger is a God of love. And I think God really cares about how we live. Not so we get into the heavenly amusement park in the sky, but because God loves you and because God loves me. And because God is love, God provides a redemption that simultaneously wipes out the sin of those who offend and still keeps God's own justice intact. God does not act whimsically, sometimes in holy wrath and sometimes in love. God acts in concert with both. You see, when, when Paul sits and says, here's all the ways we all mess up all the time and don't boast and you're not special and everyone's a hot mess and all of creation has sinned and all of creation needs help and all of creation's groaning out, the good news is 
Jesus is here for all of that. And it's because God loves us. It's because of his love that Jesus is our covering. Jesus is our kapara. A loving father does this. A loving God comes and says, all right, let's try again. Let's find a new way. Let's find a path forward. And cast sin as far as the east is from the west. Forgets it and continues to try to find a way forward. This is what is possible in Christ, and this is what Paul is arguing the whole rest of the letter, is that through Jesus, God is keeping covenant with all of us. We all need this help. Corresponding to the universal situation of guilt, where we are all in trouble, we're all in bondage to sin, we all have suffered the condemnation under the wrath of God, corresponding to all of that is a gospel of the righteousness of God which is available universally to faith and which through Christ's death offers a free and undeserved pardon, liberates us into new life where the tyranny of sin is broken, God's holiness is satisfied and a new life in Christ is possible. This is such good news, isn't it? It's such beautiful, good news. Pastor Mark at the beginning in the prayer time, he led you all through a confession of sin. Have you guys, I don't know if you've ever done that before. I grew up in a Lutheran church, loved the liturgy, and um, every single, and by the way, yes, I did decide I wanted to be a pastor when I was in the Lutheran church. So, like, it was that wonderful. Every single Sunday, we would make a confession of sin. And sometimes I hear people in our current cultural setting, like, how abusive to remind a child all the time that they're terrible, (laughs) falling short, right? Because we would say, I confess that I have sinned against you in thought, word, and deed by what I've done and by what I have left undone. I have not loved you with my whole heart. I have not loved my neighbor as myself. Forgive us and renew us. But you know what was so good? Was after you said that every single Sunday, like I've messed up and I've done the wrong thing and it's been a hot mess, then we would all stand together and say, God who is faithful and just has forgiven us and renewed us. So we didn't just confess the sin part. We confessed the freedom part, the new life part, the redemption part. And I know you might think how terribly toxic to remind an adorable, cute, little, innocent seven-year-old that she has messed up. But guess what? I knew I had messed up. (laughs) One time, I tried to get my sister in trouble because she bit me all the time. She was a couple years younger than me. So I hid in my parents' den underneath their desk and bit my own arm severely so I could get teeth marks to prove she had bitten me and didn't calculate at all the fact that the two-year-old does not have the same number of teeth as the four-year-old and got very much in trouble. And my mom said to me, Danielle, what were you trying to do? And I was like, I want to teach her a lesson because she never gets in trouble. And my mom said, Danielle, God teaches lessons. And I was like, dang. So that week I went to church. I was like, I'm really sorry. I tried to teach her a lesson because clearly that's your job. Also, could you talk to my parents about being decent, catching her? I'm just joking. But yeah, sort that out. One time... The Rubik's Cube was super popular. And my parents thought that anybody could solve the Rubik's Cube was super smart. And I wanted to be super smart. And I wanted my parents to think I was super smart. And I think at one point I solved, like, legit one side, one color, right? And then I, So then I figured out that um, those are stickers. 
And uh, you can argue that this was smart. Um, and so I peeled off all the stickers and solved the Rubik's Cube. Of course, it should have caused any thoughtful parent at any point, how come she can never solve it in front of us? And she also has to go in like a dark room and you know, hide by herself and solve it underneath the blanket. Um, and so at one point, of course, what started happening, the more you stick and unstick stickers, uh, they just fall off. And we just had like black plastic cube. So I had to go and apologize to my school teachers because my parents had told them that I was a genius and had solved a Rubik's cube. I had to go tail between the legs and tell my teachers that I was a liar. Jeez. Yes, I've read that. Revelation 21. Liars go to hell. But the good news is, you guys don't know that song from camp? Revelation, Revelation 21, 8, 21, 8. Liars go to hell, liars go to hell. Burn, 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 you know? All right. <laughs> to be clear, I did not learn that song in the Lutheran camp. Lutherans don't talk about, about hell, but I did learn it when I was evangelical adjacent. Um, so, all to say, I was so grateful every single Sunday for a way in which I could come before God and say, I am sorry, and I have messed up. And the reason why I could do that, the reason why I could say, I am sorry, here's all my sin, I've really messed up, is because I knew the next part that was coming. Christ, in his mercy, has forgiven you. Go live new life in Christ. That was the best news ever. I was like... Fantastic. Kneeled, prayed, didn't get communion because it wasn't old enough, um, and then got a blessing from the pastor and went back on my way. And I knew that week when I messed up again, there was a way back again, a way back into righteousness. I knew that I was forgiven. When I was a kid, I asked my mom, why do we go to the Lutheran church? How come we don't go to all the other churches, right? Well, like the other two. And she said, because of the grace. And that's what I experienced my whole life. Just that there wasn't anything I could do that could cause me to fall so far from Christ that I couldn't be forgiven again because of this good news in Romans, because of what Paul is shouting. Paul is shouting that Jesus takes away our sin. So when we hear verses like, behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world, when we hear verses like that God has passed over, when we hear like, we have been forgiven. We know that in Christ, we are called to repentance. It's not just enough to be forgiven from sin. We are called to turn and to start walking in the other direction. And Jesus does this, right? In Matthew 4, 17, from that time, Jesus began to preach and say, repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. That wasn't, hey guys, I'm the party. Believe in me, go to heaven, all good. That was, hey, what you're doing, you should stop doing and turn and walk in the different direction. That's the word for repentance. And in Christ, God's love is on display. 
Jeremiah 31, three. Yes, I've loved you with an everlasting love and therefore with loving kindness I have drawn you. This stuff, this is not a Jesus thing. This isn't like, well, the God of the Old Testament is a God of wrath and anger and meanness and the God of the New Testament is love and mercy. No, this, current, this is the story that has been the whole time and these are the pictures Paul is grabbing that's true for everyone. And now in Jesus, God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. And in Christ, we are redeemed This beautiful verse from Isaiah has now come true. I've blotted out like a thick cloud your transgressions and like a cloud your sins. Return to me for I have redeemed you. And Paul is saying that thing that Isaiah was talking about, that's happened now for those of us who put our faith in Jesus. Because of Jesus' righteousness, because of Jesus' faithfulness, because of his sacrifice, we have been redeemed. And this is Paul's huge declaration and his whole point for these whole chapters that in Christ, everyone gets to come. That in Jesus, the Messiah and the good news of Israel's God, the good news of Israel's covenant-keeping God, this is now for everyone. That Passover thing that happened then in Egypt and that this people group that the Jewish people rehearse this every single year, that is for everyone in Jesus. We all get to participate. That atonement cover, that mercy seat, the covering over, that's for everyone. That's been Paul's whole argument. Everyone gets this now in Jesus, that Jesus is indeed our kapara. Jesus is the asphalt. Jesus is the mercy seat. Jesus is the atonement. Jesus has justified us. Jesus has been the propitiation and the expiation. Whatever word you want to use, I like the pictures Paul is providing to say these beautiful images that have been core and central to the practice of the ancient Israelite story, to this beautiful Jewish story, these now also belong to you, followers of Jesus. I'm going to invite the team to come on up. And I just want to continue to ask that we wrestle and struggle and find the beautiful hope that is present for each one of us in the person of Christ. As we'll see as Paul continues this beautiful letter to the Romans, the hope is found in Christ. And it is found because of Christ's faithfulness, Christ's righteousness, and those who put their trust in him. For in the night in which he was betrayed, our Lord Jesus took bread, blessed and broke it, giving it to his disciples, saying, Take, eat, this is my body given for you, and do this in the remembrance of me. And likewise, after supper, he took the cup, gave thanks, and gave it to them, saying, Drink this, all of you, this is my blood of the new covenant, which is shed for you and for many for the forgiveness of sins. And do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. The table has been prepared. All who are hungry, come and eat. All who are thirsty, come, drink. Jesus waits for us here. This is his table, and he's invited every one of us to come. All are welcome here.